This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 56 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I have a special guest, Lauren Haynes, a speech pathologist who is going to chat with me about stuttering and speech fluency. I wanted to bring Lauren on because this is a topic that, you know, when people think about what a speech therapist does or what a speech pathologist does, stuttering does come up a lot. But there are a lot of misconceptions about stuttering out there just in the general population. And there's also a lot of confusion within the field of speech pathology. People don't really realize this, but stuttering is actually quite a niche area of specialization. So as a result, that means that a lot of clinicians might feel like it's an area where they aren't really sure what to do. And so when you get a fluency referral, it can be difficult to know if you're doing the right thing. And if you are a teacher or a parent and you notice that one of your kids is stuttering, It can also be really difficult to know how you can support them, when you can make a referral, when you should be concerned, and just really how to respond when you see a child stuttering. So I wanted to talk about what we can do about that in this episode. Specifically, we get into what stuttering is, how you can tell if it is happening, and some of the things that you can expect as far as red flags, risk factors, the different types of disfluencies that you might see. So if you are a speech pathologist, you know how to handle them. And if you're someone else, you know when you might want to refer to a speech pathologist. We also get into some specific types of strategies that you can use in order to support speech fluency. And then we really talk about what the goal is when a child is getting therapy to work on fluency and to address stuttering. So I'm super excited about this episode. Lauren shares some great tips and insights into helping clients who stutter. Now, as you probably know, my area of expertise is language and literacy. So I have a ton of resources to share in that area, but I know that my listeners want to have access to resources that help them to sharpen the saw and really develop their expertise across all of the different types of conditions they have to treat. That's why I am excited to announce that I am partnering with MedBridge. MedBridge is a platform that has a couple really key features that support clinicians. 
First, they have a course library that enables clinicians to get access to continuing education across a number of different areas so that you can complete your continuing education hours in the comfort of your own home and also have access to trainings across a number of different areas that you might have to treat. There are separate memberships for speech pathologists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, athletic trainers, and registered nurses. Additionally, and this is what makes MedBridge unique, they also have a client engagement feature where you can give your clients exercises that they can do at home. And I know that my listeners are always asking me how they can keep their clients engaged and move their progress forward. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is to help them to practice whatever you're doing in therapy when they are at home. So I know that as a patient, when I've gone to physical therapy, my therapist has given me some exercises that I had to do at home daily and using the MedBridge platform made that super easy to know exactly what I should be doing. And I'm sure it made it easier for my therapist to communicate that information to me. So I'm excited to announce that I have a special promo code for you so that you can get $175 off your MedBridge subscription. To get access To this special offer, all you need to do is go to www.medbridgeeducation.com backslash doctor hyphen Karen. Again, that's medbridgeeducation.com backslash dr hyphen K-A-R-E-N. And then to get access to the special promotion, you're going to want to enter promo code Karen80 with all caps, so that you can keep your clinical skills sharp and keep your patients engaged. So now, please enjoy this interview with Lauren Haynes as we talk about stuttering. So today I am joined by Lauren Haynes from Busy Bee Speech. So thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. So why don't we start off by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Lauren Haynes and I am a school SLP. I've been working in the schools for about 15 years now. And I also author the blog Busy Bee Speech from busybeespeech.com. And I have a Teachers Pay Teacher store where I sell lots of materials for SLPs um, called Lauren LaCour Haynes. So today I know, I know you've got some good resources on fluency. So we were going to talk a little bit about that today. So if we could just start off, I know that I have you know, some SLPs who are listening, some teachers, some parents. Can you explain a little bit what that means? Like when we say we have resources for fluency, what are we talking about? <laughs> Right. Okay. So um, whenever we talk about fluency, a lot of times teachers or parents might not understand what that means because there's lots of different ways we use that word. Sometimes we talk about reading fluency um, or how fluent you would read. But in this case, we're talking about speaking fluency. So um, that's more of the terms of the smoothness of our speech. So it's in terms of stuttering. 
Mm-hmm. So when we say fluency, we're talking about being able to use our words to express ourselves in a smooth way and not um, without stuttering. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking again, I know that's really can be a little bit confusing because there are a lot of terms out there. I know for parents, mm-hmm. it can be kind of confusing because there's, again, like you said, reading fluency, you know, speech fluency. Mm-hmm. With stuttering, I know that people who aren't necessarily as familiar with with speech therapy, that is actually, in my experience, one of the things that people know about a little bit more. Have you noticed that as well? Like, I think I feel like people know, like they know what stuttering is, (laughs) at least. Yes, they do, because they most people have heard someone stutter or they have in themselves stuttered um, mm-hmm. in the past. Everyone kind of has some kind of instance of stuttering at some point and they know what it means. Um, they've heard about it or they've experienced it. So, yeah, it does. Just kind of like whenever you say I'm an SLP, oh, you work with kids who can't say are or you work with kids who stutter that mm-hmm. they, they know what that is. <laughs> yeah, that's actually usually what I when people when I say I'm a speech therapist or a speech pathologist, a lot of times, those are the two things that they usually know as far as people knowing when to refer or knowing why someone might go to speech. I know with some of the other things that we treat, they don't know as much, but, or they don't, you know, people who aren't familiar with the field aren't as familiar with some of the other things. So I just to kind of share, and I know that a lot of the SLPs in the audience might know this, but how often, like on your caseload, how how many kids on your caseload are you typically treating at one point in time that have, uh, that that are stuttering or that have some work that they're doing on fluency? Okay, so that varies from year to year. Um, but for me, every year, I have at least um, one or two kids who have fluency, um, a fluency disorder or a fluency difference. And I don't know if it's just, they all come find me, but, uh, some therapists <laughs> tell me they they'll go years and years and not have a fluency case or a stuttering wow. case. But for me, it's, it's every year. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I know that when I was in the schools, you know, you have caseload of, and depending on the, on your state, what the laws are, but I would have maybe between 50 and 60 kids. And then I would at least have a couple of them that would be working on fluency. So it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting that I think people don't realize that it is kind of a, a niche specialized area within our field. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, Then a lot of therapists will not be as comfortable treating fluency. So like if I, if I have another therapist that I'm working with in the schools, a lot of times she will defer those students to me because I've had more experience with those um, cases. So that's another reason why I end up (laughs) with a few more fluency kiddos, but, um, but yeah, it is pretty niche. And a lot of times you don't see them as often, but, um, but you usually, you will at some point in your career, if you're, if you work as an SLP. Yeah. And I think, you know, that it's kind of useful for, for teachers and parents to know as well, because like, let's say that you have a child that needs services. I think it's good to know that you, you definitely want to be aware of, you know, the fact that a lot of therapists, um, <laughs> you know, that you want to, you want to find somebody who does have a background in fluency. I know in the schools, obviously it's different because, you know, you have the therapist who's, who's providing the services in that particular school and you just, 
know, you hope that they have the resources to be able to, to get that information. And I think that is part of the reason why I wanted to have you on today, because I think it is really important to, to make sure that, that therapists do have access to the information to be able to, to treat stuttering. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree. So what just kind of walk us through the process, like, let's say that so you're you're a school therapist and you there is a student who is is at that school who is stuttering. What's the process of you know getting them into therapy? How does that look? Okay, yeah. So um well we have procedures that we have to follow in my district, like I'm sure everyone who works in the school system does, and that can vary from state to state, district to district, even within the state. So mm-hmm. I follow those procedures and So for me, what I do is when I get a fluency referral, I do a couple of things. I get a teacher interview and send home permission for screening. And then with the screening permission, there's also a parent interview. So I'll have the teacher interview, the parent interview, and then the permission to screen. Um, So for fluency, I like to send additional interview questions to the parent and teacher, along with our standard questionnaires that we have to send to everyone, because it's really important to get a good case history with fluency students. Um, You want to find out if there are family members with a history of stuttering, how long they've been stuttering, if there have been any recent changes to the household environment, and really like what the environment is like in general in the home. Because studies have pointed to factors that could lead to an increased risk for long-term stuttering. So if we know those factors going in or those red flags, they can help us determine the severity of the case. And it can also help us when we go to make recommendations in our report, especially if there needs to be changes made to like the home environment. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is your evaluation process. So that's, you know, you would want to do the, the interviews in, is that for screening and evaluation or is it a little bit of both? Well, because um, in my state, we have to do a period of interventions with our students prior to referring them to an evaluation. Um, So during that process, I'll I'll try to give the the teacher classroom uh, strategies for optimal communication environment and then um, tips on how to handle stuttering. I'll do that during my RTI. Mm -hmm. And then I'll look at those interviews during my RTI before the evaluations. And since we do all of those things before eval, by the time we get to the eval, I have a good idea of what I'm going to be doing and working with. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, because then this is just, you know, clarity for, for some people with mm-hmm. the, the RTI, the response to intervention that you're wanting to, you're wanting to see if you can work on whatever it is you're working on, make some progress to see if you really do need to make a formal referral to special education. Right. And that is for every speech student that comes through for screening, no matter if it's stuttering or articulation or language, we have to have a period of RTI or interventions for every student. So, um, so for this one specifically for, for fluency, that's why I think it's important to like make sure that the environments are optimal in mm-hmm. case. So I think that's a, a really good piece of, um, of intervening. So especially in that, before you get to that evaluation, yeah. um, just to make sure that all of that is in place. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because I've heard some debate on fluency specifically with response to intervention, because mm-hmm. a lot of times, so with response to intervention, you know, if you have a student who might be behind in reading, 
sometimes you can, with the short-term intervention, help them catch up and then they might not ever need to get you know, formal special education services. But I've heard some people make the case that for fluency, well, if they have a fluency disorder and you're not referring for special ed, then you're withholding services from a student who who actually does have a disability. So I think that's interesting. And obviously you do have to follow your state guidelines. And luckily Mm -hmm. it does sound like, you know, whether it's official or not, you are providing intervention. So I'm curious if, do you have times when you have had a student where you've done the intervention and then not ended up actually doing a, a an IEP for a student? <laughs> um, very rarely. <laughs> um, there has been cases where the parents have been concerned about their fluency and it was extremely mild and I never heard it in my sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, so on those cases, I, you know, I would send home um, just tips for the parent and then make and talk to the teachers and the teacher hasn't heard any, any fluency issues. And so in those cases, I would, I would talk to the parent about some things they can do in their environment to make sure it's optimal, um, Mm -hmm. for communication and, um, talking to them how to deal with stuttering when it comes up. But because I never heard any instances of it, we didn't go forward with the evaluation, Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I agree. Um, in 99% of the cases, it's, I mean, RTI isn't really going to um, change the fact that they're going to end up with an IEP if they exhibit all of those risk factors and, and have a lot of disfluencies, if they're, an, you know, a true person who stutters. Yeah. And I just say that to kind of set the stage for, you know, like if, if somebody's listening and they're thinking, oh, well, we're going to try this intervention, you know, maybe, maybe we can quote, fix them. And I, I use that term very loosely because, yeah. you know, stuttering doesn't mean any, there's anything that's wrong with you, but it might mean that there are, it's something that you will be working on. Like, you know, the president right now is a stutterer and mm-hmm. I'm sure he still has to work on that. I had a professor in graduate school who, um, so he taught some undergraduate classes and I took uh, an entire semester course with them and graduate and, or no, it was in my undergrad. And then he taught the stuttering courses when I got to grad school. And he said the very first day of the stuttering course, like I'm a stutterer. I had, I have a very, you know, very severe stuttering as a child. And, you know, I do exercises every day so that I can, you know, go and communicate effectively. I went through that entire semester and undergraduate, and I had no idea. And he was, you know, a severe, a severe stutterer. And I think that he, it was something that, you know, he was extremely successful. It was his life's work. And, um, but it was always something that, that he worked on all the time. And, and I think that, um, you know, like, and that's not to be doom and gloom, but also just to kind of set realistic expectations that yes, you can be extremely successful if you're stuttering, but it is something that, you know, it's not going to be something where, you know, we go to therapy for a month and then you fix it. <laughs> oh, so. no, it is, it is. There's no, there's no quote unquote cure or quick fix, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the fact that we have to do the RTI is, is, I mean, you know, for a true person who stutters is you know, kind of, I don't really necessarily agree with that, but 
there are some cases for speech therapy. I mean, even language kids, honestly, like the RTI, yeah. really, like what really can you do? Um, I know, I know. But um, <laughs> the articulation is the only one that I've really um, had a lot of progress with RTI in general. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. And yeah, so if a, if a child maybe can't say there are sounds, sometimes you can in a couple, mm-hmm. you know, in an eight week period, get them over that hump. If it mm-hmm. just need a little bit of help. So uh, you mentioned some risk factors for long-term stuttering. What are those risk factors? Uh, Yeah. So some red flags that you might look at, especially in children who are younger. Um, These are, these are more um, factors that could contribute. They don't cause stuttering or they don't mean that you're definitely going to stutter, but they're just red flags to look at to see this could be a potential increase for long-term stuttering and that it would be being male. Mm-hmm. So boys are typically um, more likely to stutter long-term than girls, um, have a family history of stuttering, um, parent or grandparent, um, the age of onset. So there's higher risk after three years old. Um, also time since onset. So the longer they have been stuttering, the more risk. Um, we usually look at maybe a six month period and see if they're, they continue to stutter after six months or even longer than that's you know, increasing the risk. Um, and then consistency. So there's more risk if the stuttering, the stuttering events increase in the first year. Um, and then if they are exhibiting more stutter like disfluencies, like blocks, severe sound repetitions, all of those are, are more likely to cause long-term or to indicate long-term stuttering. Mm -hmm. So, and I know that a lot of times when kids are developing language and they have a big boost in language, Mm -hmm. some disfluencies are, can happen. And sometimes kids resolve that with a little bit of therapy, or sometimes they resolve it without therapy. Can you talk about the difference between what those disfluencies look like and then what those blocks and those other things that you mentioned would look like? Yes. So actually in preschoolers, about 75% will um, not stutter long-term. So they'll recover from their stuttering events on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's likely that they that a preschooler who who does exhibit some disfluencies won't continue to do it. Um, but that's that's why these risk factors are important. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a preschooler or a young student um, who is not at risk, what they typically do is they might stutter on the first word or um, or they'll do a phrase repetition or they'll hesitate a lot mm-hmm. or and some of them might even do some blocking, but it just it'll be way a lot more inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see it for a day or two and then it will leave. And then it'll, you might see it again another day and then it'll leave and then it'll stop and won't last longer than a, like a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that can mean more um, that they are not at risk. Also, if they are younger, like if they're two years old, it typically happens because you do those big language bursts around right. two and three. Mm-hmm. Um so if they're two and three and they're doing the little periodic stuttering events, um, then um, it's not as concerning or um, indicative of a long-term stuttering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times parents, when when I've heard them describe it, they'll say, I don't know if they're stuttering or if they're just 
repeating themselves or thinking what they're what they want to say, or they'll say something and then it's almost like they're revising what they said because they realized that they needed to fix it. It and it, they they aren't really sure if it's that or if it's true disfluencies. Those are some of the things that I have heard people say when they describe their child stuttering. Right. And there's no actual, like you can never actually know for sure. Right. You can just look at the risk factors and and make a judgment call or kind of, and use it, you know, and they, it does, even if they don't show any of these risk factors, it doesn't mean they won't stutter long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, you it, they possibly still could, or, um, or they might have, you know, all the risk factors and then not continue to stutter. Mm-hmm. So, you can't just strictly go by those. Um, but that's why it's good to have a speech language pathologist screen or have a good discussion with them or, um, you know, get their input. Um, especially if as a parent, you're concerned about it. Yeah. Now, what about those more significant disfluencies like blocks Mm -hmm. and prolongations? What, like, how would you explain that to someone Mm -hmm. how that Mm -hmm. would look? So, with those, you can clearly see the tension that's in their face, especially with a block. Um, so you can there you can see like a break in their the smoothness of their speech. So if they're talking and they're trying to say the word ball, they're going to push their lips together and not be able to get the word out. And it would sound more like ball and you would see, hear that clear tension on the first sound. Mm-hmm. Um is common with a block, or they might just not be able to finish the word. They'll you they'll be talking and then they they stop and um and you're just standing there waiting for them to finish the word. Um, a sound repetition would be the rep- the repeating of the first or one so the first sound or even the ending sound. Sometimes most often it's the first sound. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to say the word ball with a sound repetition, it would be ball. Um, and then a prolongation is holding out along um, one of the first syllables of the word. So it would be ball. Um, that would be a prolongation. And those are more stutter-like disfluencies than just repeating a phrase or repeating a word. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can, I can go too. That's a phrase. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. more typical. We all sometimes might do that or revise. Um, those are tip, more typical non-stutter-like disfluencies, um, but the more stutter-like disfluencies are the ones like the blocks and the sound repetitions and the prolongations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard people say, they'll say, it's like he can't get it out, like he's mm-hmm. stuck, or you, it mm-hmm. looks like there's more, that they're stuck. I had a student who, it was so interesting, he, it came, it was in third grade, and his like his teacher was like, I I can't figure out what he's doing. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't have a block where it was this obvious disfluency. And, but he would almost do this inhalation Mm -hmm. and, you know, myself and the other speech pathologist in the building were like, what is going on here? He had taught himself some of the strategies that we would teach a student to, Mm -hmm. you know, to work through some of those disfluencies, but he hadn't quite fine tuned it yet. 
So mm-hmm. he was doing all these things where you could tell that his speech wasn't fluent or, you know, again, you could tell that there was something going on, but it, it was just really interesting. Um, so I don't know. Have you ever seen a kid do that before? <laughs> Yeah, I've seen some interesting compensations <laughs> when they haven't gotten um, real structured therapy. They try to do th- some things to compensate a lot of times. And you're like, where did you get this from? Yeah, um, yeah. Like I've heard audible inhalations like that before. And it just sounds like they can't catch their breath. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they're just they're trying to compensate for their disfluencies and they haven't been taught some um some good strategies. <laughs> yeah. Mostly. I mean, sometimes that might, that might be a disfluency itself, but right. in most cases that I've seen, it's usually just they're, they're trying to compensate for, um, for their disfluencies. Yeah. I, uh, I, I talked to a guy one time who, um, you know, I met him, I met him in one of my business groups and he said to me, he said, my daughter has apraxia, which again is mm-hmm. more of a motor planning issue. Mm-hmm. And he said that, and I have, I have it too. And my, my daughter's speech pathologist thinks that I had apraxia too. And I just, you know, I never got therapy. I just had to figure it out. But when I actually talked to him, cause I was like, what? I was like, oh, I want to hear more about that. If you're yeah. sharing. And once he started explaining it, he said, he said, it was like, I couldn't get the word out. And I just had to relax my entire body and just ease into it and just let it out. Hmm. Like that's not apraxia. You, you stuttered. (laughs) That sounds a little bit more like stuttering. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, Oh, well, that's interesting. And you know, this guy is, um, he was a recruiter. So doing lots of sales calls, all kinds of presentations. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he even said to me, he's like, you know what? I just got to the point where it's like, this is me. I don't care. I know how to you know, and again, he did figure out how to, how to work on it and speak clearly when he wanted to. And, you know, but then, you know, he said, sometimes I just, I don't care, you know, I'm just gonna, if I, if I, it doesn't come out right, that's fine. Um, And so I thought that was really interesting, but he did say, you know, school would have been a lot easier for me had I have learned it sooner. You know, I think that a lot of people, when they look at something that maybe they did figure out how to, how to work with it. They, most people are, when they see their child having the same type of thing, they definitely want their child to get the help way sooner, even if they figured it out without the help. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I've heard that yeah. too. Um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about, so what are some things that, and whether it be therapists, prof- other professionals like teachers, or just People in the general public, like what are some of the common myths about stuttering and disfluency? Um, okay, so well, a lot of times when I ask parents what they do whenever their child has an instance of stuttering, they'll say, oh, I tell him to stop and slow down and just think about what you want to say. Um And I find that this is a lot of people's initial reaction to someone who stutters is the whole, if you just blank then you'll fix it, you know? Um, And that's often like pretty well, it's well intended, you know, they're, they're trying to help, but it's actually not very helpful because um, I mean, you want to encourage them to listen to what the child is saying rather than how they're saying it, Mm -hmm. because you know, there's really no quick fix. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I hear that a lot, especially like from parents. um, Cause they, I mean, they don't know how to handle it when there's, 
um, child is, is stuttering. So I just always try to encourage them. Just listen to what they're saying rather than how they're saying it. And, um, and then once the child is in therapy or in a place where they can use the strategies or any of that, then we can come to the point to where maybe you can do some things to address it and we can work on that together. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then as far as SLPs, I think that many SLPs feel like they're just not well prepared for fluency cases and it intimidates them. Yeah. Um, I think grad school programs might not have given them like adequate information and skills to tackle it. Um And then since like we talked about fluency cases were a lot less common than articulation and language, sometimes they might forget the strategies on how to target it. Mm -hmm. Um, And plus, honestly, like research has changed a lot in the last couple of years and like terms and methods that we previously used are now being modified and the direction of treatment is moving to be more like student led, um, like self-advocacy and education Mm -hmm. um, and not so focused on disfluency counts. Um, so fluency therapy is so much more than just playing the turtle talk game, um, or practicing slow, easy speech. So I think that therapists kind of come to it from that end and they, you know, they're also well-intended, but they, I think they're just, um, they don't feel very confident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always felt initially like I just didn't. And I didn't, it didn't make sense what I was supposed to be doing in there. Like, like what does slow, easy speech mean? What am I actually doing? Am I doing this mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a lot and there are lots of different things you can do and lots of different strategies. And, and we can talk about some of those in, in just a minute. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's hard for a therapist to remember all the things, especially a school SLP, because you really are the jack of all trades. Like you have to know about every single disorder. <laughs> Yeah. And know how to practice it and best practice all the time. And so it's, it's not easy. Um, so that I think is tough, but some more misconceptions I think is that people stutter because they're nervous or have anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, and I like what Nina Reeve says, and she says that it's a neurologically based physical motor manifestation of a disorder in communication. Nowhere in there does she say, or does it talk about it being in anxiety or psychologically driven? Like it's just like it's neurological um, and it's not caused by any one thing. Um, now, the anxiety and emotional factors can accompany stuttering, but it's not causing it. So yeah. it's important that we are mindful about like that mental health and pay attention to that counseling component. But like the conditions of stuttering is not psychological in, in itself. Yeah. Like it's not just in your head. <laughs> right. Right. It can't just like fix it because you're nervous. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some kids who if they're, if they had something that was stressful or they were tired or they had a lot of anxiety, then that would make them less able to use strategies. And as a result, they would stutter more, but that wasn't necessarily the root cause. It was just a factor that could impact you know, like, like how their speech sounded. So yes, it exacerbates it, honestly. And okay. So I actually stuttered as a child. Um, yeah, I I stuttered for a little bit as a, as a young child, but I didn't have any therapy and I was one of the, the kids that grew out of it. But I remember the feeling of being stuck. Um, Mm -hmm. and even now when I'm tired or when I'm anxious, I don't string my thoughts together as well as I want to. And um, I'll end up stuttering sometimes. Um, but I mean, y'all, and you might even can feel it too. Like when you're really not feeling well or tired or anxious or nervous, you can't 
you might not be able to string your thoughts together like you want to. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so anyway, it's, it's not a, that's one of the misconceptions that I see a lot is people think that they're just nervous. Um, and then another one I think is more among therapists and even some parents, like we shouldn't use the word stutter. Mm, um, yeah. And this one's kind of an old school concept concept that's getting better. Um, but I'll still find some that try to avoid that word um, because they think it'll make the child feel bad. Um, but I don't know. Have you ever seen Harry Potter? Yeah. Okay. So in that movie, everyone calls Voldemort like the bad guy, he who must not be named. Yeah. And like they won't say his name out of fear, but like Harry never backs down from it because, and he refuses to like shy away from that word to show that he's not afraid of him. Um, so to me, that it's kind of the same concept when you're using the word stuttering. So why would we shy away from it? Because it doesn't mean that we're scared. You know, um, we don't want to treat it as a taboo topic or make students think that it's something to be afraid of or ashamed of when it's not like stuttering is just another way of talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. We don't want to make stuttering the the Voldemort of of speaking. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And I'm sure there, you know, there's tons of research with, with desensitization and avoidance and fear yes. and that it actually increases that. And even mm-hmm. though fear isn't the main cause, it definitely mm-hmm. can make things worse. And it's interesting that one of the strategies, and I don't know which strategies you were going to mention in, in, in a minute here, but one of the things that I was taught was that sometimes that you can teach kids to stutter on purpose on a word that they know is going to be kind of an easy fix mm-hmm. so that they can kind of be speaking more smoothly to when they get to the word that they are worried about stuttering on. Cause don't they, I mean, I know that sometimes kids will talk around words when mm-hmm. they know that it's a word that they're going to stutter on. And then that, that avoidance thing just creates more tension. Right. And so some of those emotional and like, social emotional concepts can rise up out of stuttering. Like you said, um, they'll avoid certain words, they'll avoid certain yeah. places or certain topics because they know it will make them more disfluent. And one of the therapy strategies that um, that we will do sometimes is desensitization or stuttering on purpose or fake stuttering is what we call it. Mm-hmm. Um so they'll fake like they're stuttering to show that it's fine. Um, so if they're avoiding, um, I don't know, ordering at a restaurant or like McDonald's or, or someplace and because they think they're going to stutter or I'm um, making a phone call, we can make like they'll practice stuttering on purpose in those situations just to desensitize themselves from being afraid of it mm-hmm. or yeah. avoiding it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've got the purposeful or fake stuttering. And then you mentioned slow, easy speech. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So um, the slow, easy speech is just, um, (laughs) that's a a strategy that a lot of therapists will just kind of default to. Um, But I don't know that a lot of them really understand um, what they're trying to do other than just um, talk slower and easier. Um, Because whenever we are working with students, I'm going to back up and say there's three areas that I typically address in therapy, and that is education, stuttering modification, and then those social emotional aspects or that counseling that we were um, mentioning a second ago. Um, And so the slow, easy speech is part of that stuttering modification or shaping. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I typically don't call it slow, easy speech when I'm working on it because 
that can encompass so many different things. And I want to delineate the strategies that they're using so that they understand exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So slow speech can just be a reduced rate. Um, Easy speech could be reducing like, um, like a light, like doing like a light contact or reducing tension. So Mm -hmm. whenever you are working on strategies to help them change their speech or um, the, and help them to reduce the tension, you are focusing mostly on changing the timing or the tension. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the timing can be anything from the reduced rate to pausing, to um, like using a pacing board, uh, all of that, like that can be helpful with timing. And like some things that, that I'll do with that is I'll, I'll use a pacing board. Sometimes we'll do um, syllabic timed speech where they're, where they are um, like talking on the syllables just to give them some fluency to show them how it works. Um, and then like for pausing, I like, especially if they're readers, I like this strategy because they can, re- we can practice reading and then they can use highlighter tape or washi tape to make pauses in the different places um, in a sentence in a book. Then they can go back and read it and placing those brief pauses where they would naturally occur. So with pausing, you would say a phrase and then you would pause and you would say a, a few more words and then you would pause. So it's, it's good when they have that visual when they're reading. Yeah. Um, so for those, are, those are some of those timing techniques. And then some of the techniques for decreasing tension are things like cancellation, pullouts, or light contact that we um, were mentioning easy speech. So light contact um, is what I like to um, use with that one. And for these, you want to teach them how to release the tension that they've built up in their mouths. Um, and the, one of the things that we're doing this week with how I'm doing with my uh, kindergartner who stutters is I was trying to show him the difference between tense and loose. So I was trying to, I was telling him to try to pick up the table and feel the tension on how heavy it is. And then to pick up a piece of paper and show him how light it is. Mm-hmm. So see how tense you have to get and how tense your arms are whenever you pick up the table and then versus how tense your arms are whenever you just pick up a sheet of paper. Um, so that's how I want your, this, this speech um, mechanism in your mouth. That's how I want it to be. I want it to be very loose. That's how we talk about light contact. So, so light contact is keeping the tension in the mouth looser. Um, when you touch the articulators in your mouth together lightly and softly. So that was, it's fun for the little ones like that to practice it because they know a lot of, I can teach them a lot of different ways to do um, tight and loose. Yeah. Um, and then cancellation is another one that I mentioned. And that is when after a stuttered word, you wait a couple seconds, release the tension and then say it again with less tension. Um, you can get a stress ball and practice squeezing and releasing to help visualize decreasing that tension. Um, and so this one is good to practice, even if they are stuttering at the word level, they can play a game like memory and then say the word on the picture, then say it again with, uh, less tension. Um, or you can even fake stutter on the word and then say it again uh, to practice feeling the difference in the tension. So the fake stuttering could even um, play a part in trying to feel the difference in the tension. Um, and then lastly, the pullout strategy, I like to think of as freezing and sliding. So during a stutter, you ease yourself out by reducing tension and then you freeze the sound that's repeated or tensed up and then you relax the articulators that produce it. So I like to have them catch the sound in their fist and then gradually open their hand to release it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for this one, unless they are in like a severe block or repetition, I feel like the hardest part is for them to recognize when they're stuttering in the middle of it so they can stop and freeze. But um, 
the structured sentence or conversational tasks are good for this one. Yeah, I know with with pullouts, sometimes it's I like that visual of the fist because Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be hard to explain it to kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have them grab it. I try to get them to grab it, but it's hard because they have to catch themselves in the middle of it. And especially when they're younger, they don't always realize when they're when they're in a moment of of stuttering. Is there an age when you typically see kids to to notice it more or to become a little more self-conscious about it? Um, it really varies depending on the kid. I've had um I've had some preschoolers that were pretty self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've had some like I work at an elementary school. So I've had some like third and fourth graders who could care, who could not care less. Like they, (laughs) they didn't, um, it didn't bother them at all that they stuttered. (laughs) Yeah. mm -hmm. That's interesting. But yeah, but sometimes, you know, it's, it it impacts, it's, it's hard to understand them. It's hard for them to communicate. And so obviously, obviously we still work on it. Absolutely. And like, I think that sometimes they, um, they really, I mean, they do know, especially if they're older, like they, they know. Um, so it's, it's good to try to dig deep into those social emotional concepts and just to make sure that they are actually really good with it. And they're not just putting up a front. Yeah, I know. Sometimes it's kind of a, it's like a compensatory mechanism to say you don't care because it's, you know, maybe there's been repeated failures and you just, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some shame there. So, Mm -hmm. so those things were education and and you said then modification and then social emotional. So education is just teaching them the terminology and all of those things. And then, yeah, like this teaching, yeah, teaching them the speech mechanism is part of education. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's whenever you teach them about your lungs and your breathing and your voice box and your articulators and the whole, the whole component of like your brain, all of that, that makes, that makes you talk how it works. Um, because you want them to be able to understand how it works in order to be able to change it. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, part of education is also understanding like more information about stuttering, um, what it means, like what are the different types of disfluencies? And then also what are the different strategies that, that we can use to help us? Yeah. What do you usually address with the social emotional? Is that where you are taking them out into different situations when they, where they can practice? Um, yeah, that one is going to depend a lot on the student and what they need. I'll try to do some activities with them, um, like some like some worksheets to to see where they're at. Like I, I want to uh, I like to get a gauge on on what, how they view themselves and how they view their speech. Um, but, yeah, we'll we'll practice different situations that they might avoid. Um we can practice um, desensitization or self ad. We can do some self advocacy. So uh, they might, we might want them to initiate more conversations. We might want them to talk to their class about fluency, um, to tell them that they stutter, and um, all of those types of things can can play a role in the social emotional aspect. Um, if there's any type of situations or people um, that they're avoiding, I might put those into some goals too, um, to target. And then, uh, just to make sure that, that the student isn't, isn't, 
engaged in any kind of like, you know, being targeted for bullying or anything like that. Yeah. Um, Cause you, you always want to be on the lookout for those types of things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Are there any cases where, and I know that this is up for debate or I've heard people debate this as well, where sometimes people almost want the goal to be you're a hundred percent fluent. Like that's the goal of therapy, but mm-hmm. I've heard people debate that before. Like what's, what's your take on that? What is really the goal of fluency therapy? Right. Okay. So unfortunately with my state, in order to qualify for therapy, you have to be 5% disfluent. Like, so, mm-hmm. um, or 95% fluent. Okay. So we, I do have to look at, um, like the percent syllable stuttered to a degree, um, just because that determines eligibility. Um, but I really hate that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I can't really do anything about it until laws change, but that's not like, to me, that's, that shouldn't be the goal because fluency fluctuates so much from day to day. And I don't know if you've noticed this whenever you have had those students, like one day they can be doing great. And then the next day they're like stuttering a whole lot or, um, certain times of year around Christmas time, stuttering is up, you know, when they're all excited, um, and then other times it's, you know, it gets better or then there's a certain situations and I don't know. It's just because it fluctuates so much and in different circumstances and different environments, um, it's just hard to, to make that call just solely based on syllable stuttered. So I, I'm more of the camp of uh, no, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather it not be a hundred percent fluent is the goal. <laughs> Nobody yeah. is a hundred percent fluent. <laughs> um but to me, it's, it's a, it should be more student led. Like what do they want out of their therapy? Um, what are their attitudes and feelings about stuttering? Um, do, how much do they want to put into, to changing it, you know, um, because it's okay to stutter. And a lot of, and I think a lot of, uh, the research is, was looking more at the goal of fluency therapy to, um, to be a little bit, not just solely, percent fluency based percent disfluency based um mm-hmm. and more of overall attitudes and feelings about stuttering um being able to do some self advocacy for themselves you know for themselves or showing them um how to how to like how the speech machine works teaching them about stuttering giving them information and letting and letting them really make it their own yeah Yeah. Like the way that I have heard it explained by people who are professionals who, Mm -hmm. you know, SLPs or people who, who are stuttering is it's more that you have the strategy that you can use and you, you feel good and confident about using it when you want to use it. And Mm -hmm. maybe there are times when you don't care. Like Mm -hmm. I had a student who his mom would be really concerned because he could be pretty fluent in, in school all day. And then he would get into the car after school and just be stuttering a ton because he was talking to his mom and mm-hmm. he's not trying to use his strategies when he's just tired and talking to his mom at the end of the day. And so she was concerned, but, you know, we did get to the point, I think he started therapy when he was maybe three and then late elementary school, he did eventually come to me and say, I, like, I think I've got this. I think mm-hmm. I'm good. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, if you want to be done with speech and you feel good about this, 
just know you can come back and, you know, talk to me or whoever the, the therapist is that you're building. If you ever feel like you want a tune-up or you want to work on it again, but you know, like he said, I think I'm good. And yeah. so, you know, <laughs> that's yep. what we want. <laughs> we want him to yeah. feel communicating. Yep. And that's, um, and it's a lot of times it's hard. It's, but it's, it's easier when the, as the kids get older to be able to know. And when the kids are yeah. younger, it's harder because you have to go by what the parents want, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have to kind of gauge, okay, so let's talk about what the student wants versus what the parents want and how can we kind of make a happy medium? Um, yeah. mm-hmm. is there a lot of, um, are there pressures being put on the student that can be reduced because of it, you know, or, um, things that need to change in their environment? Is there bullying or other counseling aspects that we could do in therapy and make therapy more of like that? Um, so, you know, I think it just is case by case and situation by situation, but as the kids get older, especially, you know, middle school, high school age, um, I think having it be more student led is, is a really great idea. Yeah. I mean, obviously when you have a, when you have minors, you have to pay attention to parent input as well, but, but yeah, I agree that like you want the student to feel confident about communicating and you want Mm -hmm. the self-advocacy there. So it can't just be, you know, a hundred percent, like the student has to have some, some, uh, insight into the process at that point. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think if they've been in therapy for that long, a lot of times that, you know, they'll start in therapy in kindergarten or whatever. Yeah. And then by the time they get to middle school, they've, you know, they've heard the drill every yeah. year. They um, know what's going they, on. <laughs> so they, they know how to do it. Um, but it's, and it's just up to them if they want to use it or not. Um, so, you know, you can't, and there's no quote unquote cure or fix. So, they're going to be dealing with this their whole life. And so however they want to deal with it, um, I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I love being a part of that process and giving them the tools to, to help them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where can people go if they want more information about some of the resources that you offer for fluency and stuttering? Yes. Okay. So I have a lot of blog posts about fluency on my blog, busybeespeech.com. So if you're just wanting like a lot of information, I have some different activities and fun things that you can do in fluency therapy on my blog and like how to treat therapy in mixed groups. If you're a therapist and different things like that, that I think would be beneficial if you're looking for that. Um, as far as resources go, I have a fluency binder for school age and a f- interactive fluency binder for preschool that have lots of um, great information in it, hands-on activities for the kids, as well as some, like, the preschool one has lots of like, sample goals and tips for parents and teachers. So if you're wanting um, some actual resources like that, you could find that on my Teachers Pay Teachers uh, store website. And that is teacherspayteachers.com. And then it's Lauren LaCour Haynes is the name of the store. Okay, great. And I will link to uh, some of those blog posts. You can send those Mm -hmm. to me. We'll link to those in the show notes. And then we can link to those fluency binders as well so that people can check those out if they want to learn more from you. Yep. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check out the show notes 
to get all of the links to the resources that Lauren mentioned in this episode for information on stuttering. And then also, I wanted to remind you that if you are looking for a platform that enables you to get your continuing education and engage your clients with at-home exercises all in one platform, then check out MedBridge. Since I am partnering with them, I have a special promo code for you to get $175 off your MedBridge subscription to get access to that. Just go to www.medbridgeeducation.com backslash Dr. Hyphen Karen. Again, that's medbridgeeducation.com backslash Dr. Hyphen K-A-R-E-N. And then enter promo code Karen80 with all caps. As always, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you in the next episode.